0: Wow, what a privilege it is to be with you all and a joy. Um, You know, I have to lift up at least one praise for a moment here, and that is air conditioning. Um, Outside this morning, while it was not particularly hot, I must tell you it was quite humid, and uh, so I am grateful this morning for air conditioning. Uh, Welcome again uh, to those who are online and those who are here. We are going through a short series. Uh, The series is called Reset. Um, And Matt, uh, Pastor Matt, last week, began to take us through kind of why the reset. Um, In the midst of the craziness in the world that we are in today and all the headlines and all the things that we see and all the stuff that is around us, sometimes in the midst of all of that, it's best to reset ourselves. It's best to go back to the the propositional truths that we know or the propositional truths that God has given us and just recalibrate and and reset on those truths. And last week, Matt uh, spoke and called his sermon title uh, Reset Number One. And, you know, after hours and hours and hours of debate and consideration, I've come up with a title for this sermon. And it's reset number 2 so last week matt spent some time on this idea of what do we reset ourselves in and he and he spoke of resetting ourselves in the gospel for the gospel itself means good news and the good news that god gave to us is that jesus came and that he died and he was raised from the dead And in this small series, we're going to look at three promises that God gives us in the gospel. The first is that we are free from the penalty of sin. The second, that we have freedom from the power of sin. And thirdly, that we have freedom from the very presence of sin itself. Last week, Matt shared with us through Romans 3 that we are free from the penalty of sin. And as fallen human beings in a broken world, it is our nature from the very first sin of Adam that we have all sinned and that we are deserving of punishment and that we are, in fact, deserving of being rejected by God. He shared that we cannot by the power of our own or by any good deeds of our own satisfy the punishment. And nor can we restore this right relationship with God, our creator and our sustainer. But it is Jesus on the cross paid the penalty for us once and for all. And he imputed his righteousness to us for those who believe in faith and thereby restoring us to a right relationship with God. So much, in fact, that when God looks upon us, those who have taken Christ by faith, that he does not see a people deserving of punishment, a sinner. What he sees is his beloved son. He sees Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And He sees the righteousness of adopted sons and daughters. And so, therefore, He loves us. He adores us. He protects us and provides for us all that we need. This is what theologians and the Westminster Confession of Faith call justification. For we have been justified no longer deserving of the penalty of sin. We are free and invited to the very heavenly places with God. The second big promise that Matt touched on last week was we are set free from the power of sin. The text that we're going to look at for this promise is Romans 6, 1 through 14. So if you have your Bible with you, either electronic or otherwise, turn with me to Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable to you. May you bring your word alive in us. May our minds be renewed and our hearts refreshed to know who you are, and how you work in our world and in ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Most of my life, I have been a so what guy, even so much that in seminary, every time a professor would speak some sort of propositional truth or set forth some some idea I would raise my hand almost immediately to say, okay, well, yeah, but so what? What does that ultimately mean? Now, of course, I was in the front row because I'm old and all the younger students are in the back because they're cool, but still, I would raise and I'd say, why? What's the point? Where is all of this going? You know, Being a so-what guy has helped me in so many ways think through different propositional truths of life. But to be fair, it's also gotten me in a lot of trouble. One particular time when I was young, my mother had just purchased a tape recorder. Now, for some, you have no idea what I'm talking about what a tape recorder is. But back in the day, my mother bought this box. couldn't be much bigger than, well, maybe an iPad, put it in context. And um, it just had a little slot where you put in a cassette tape and a little speaker, single teeny speaker, and you would record things. My mother was a nurse, and she had bought this tape recorder, which, by the way, back then was a lot of money, um, to, to record um, necessary things for patients, that she had gotten to the point where it was difficult to write all the notes. And so what she would do is record notes that were necessary for patients uh, and, and actions associated with that. Well, being a so-what guy, I was fascinated. What, what, how did this thing work? I mean, how did your just voice speak, and it ended up on this tape that you could listen to whenever you wanted to? It was a fascinating idea to me. And so I did what any good, precocious boy would do. I went to my father's toolbox, and I got out some tools. And I took my mother's tape recorder, and I went to my room, shut and locked the door, and I took this tape recorder apart, piece by piece, screw by screw, plastic by plastic, metal by metal, I took it apart, whereas there were hundreds of tiny little pieces all over my room. Wouldn't you know it? My mom knocked on the door and insisted to come in. And as I let her in and opened the door, you can only imagine her expression when her brand new tape recorder was before her on my floor in hundreds of pieces. Needless to say, she was quite perturbed. (laughs) She insisted that I put this thing back together. And while it's true, I'm really good at taking things apart. What's equally as true is I stink at putting things back together. And so my poor mother had to buy a new tape recorder, for I had no idea how to put it back together. So what is the so what of justification? What's the big deal? What does it ultimately mean? What is next? Well, the so what of justification is called sanctification. And I'd like to spend a little bit of time taking apart the idea of sanctification. For if we're justified, that is, that our sins are forgiven, and we stand before a righteous God, with the righteousness of Christ, what's next? John Calvin puts it this way, justification and sanctification, gifts of grace go together as if tied by an inseparable bond, so that if anyone tries to separate them, he is, in a sense, tearing Christ to pieces. Sanctification doesn't just flow from justification so that one produces the other. Both come from the same source. Christ justifies no one whom he does not also sanctify. By virtue of our union with Christ, he bestows both gifts, the one, never without the other. So how are we going to look at sanctification? How are we going to take it apart? We're going to do so in three ways. First, what is it? Second, how does it work? And thirdly, what is the goal of it? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 35, puts it this way. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Said differently, Sanctification is the renewing of the believer to more and more become the image of Jesus Christ in this life. There are two principal effects that sin produces, which cannot be separated one, the filthy defilement that it causes us, and secondly, the awful guilt. That it entails. Thus, salvation from sin necessarily requires both a cleansing and a clearing of the one who is to be saved. Again, there are two absolutely indispensable things in order for anyone to dwell in the heavenly places with an almighty God one, a valid title to that inheritance. That is justification. But secondly, a personal fitness to enjoy such blessedness. That is sanctification. We clearly see this articulated in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he says, And because of him who are in Christ Jesus, who become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We also see it in 1 John 1.9, a text that we often use for our assurance of forgiveness when we repent. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here we see the forgiveness of sins for sure. But there's also an understanding of an ongoing cleansing. An ongoing betterment of the believer. Remember Matt said last week that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. That is, that the penalty of sin has been taken care of once And for all who believe in him. But we continually need to be cleansed of our sin. One commentator I read put it this way. Though absolutely inseparable, yet these two blessings of divine grace are quite distinct. In sanctification, something is actually imparted to us. In justification, it is imputed. Justification is based entirely on the work of Christ wrought for us. But sanctification is principally a work wrought in us. Justification respects its object in a legal sense and terminates with the change of a deliverance from punishment and a right to the reward. But sanctification regards its object in the moral sense, and terminates with a change in both the character and the conduct of the person, imparting a love for God, a capacity to worship Him. And sanctification brings us ready for heaven. So, if that's what sanctification is, How does it work? What makes it tick? Paul addresses this in her passage in two thoughts. One, can we just keep on sinning because of justifying grace? And two, why do we keep on sinning even though we are justified? Firstly, if justification is true, Why can't I just keep on sinning? In fact, some make the argument to Paul. This very argument to him. We see it in the first verse of our text. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Maybe, just maybe, it's okay to sin. Maybe even, someone poses to Paul, maybe even it's glorifying to God. It gives him the full recognition of the grace that he has given us on the cross, does it not? But Paul answers his question quite quickly and with very few words. In verse 2, by no means, no, heck no. (laughs) While we're going to talk next week about the fullness of the purpose of sanctification, It's important to understand that the the, the backdrop that Paul is dealing with here in these verses gives us a purpose for living the Christian life beyond the freedom of the penalty of sin, that there is a joy in it. There's a joy in being conformed as to how we are made, and there's a hope, a hope in the fullness of being without sin no more. Paul continues on past his simple no answer in verses 3 and 4, explaining this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, we too might walk. In the newness of life. Paul makes the point that justification is not only a means that you are forgiven. It, it, it is a way in which the penalty of sin has been paid by Christ on the cross. Yes. But we are also raised with him in life. In the newness of life. And this new life is a changed Life, A life eternal. A life in which we are united with Jesus. Recall that Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. Not that we can live a sinless life at all. But united with Christ, he guides us. He shows us. He walks with us. He empowers us to avoid sin. Therefore, Paul's point here is that because we are united with Christ in death, that is our life prior to justification, and we are united with Christ in his resurrection, that is the defeat of death, that we, those who by faith believe in Christ, no longer wish to sin. Augustine writes this, explains it this way. He describes the state of man prior to justification as non-passe, non pecare." Now, I'll, most of you I know know Latin, but let me explain. Basically, he says, prior to justification, we are not able not to sin. Prior to being saved... By, God, by Christ's work on the cross, we will always sin. We're not able not to sin. But a man or woman who by faith is justified, Augustine describes it this way, passe non picare." able not to sin. That is, we are able not to sin And we still do sin. But we are able not to sin. So why then do we keep on sinning if we are able not to sin? The larger answer is because we remain in what theologians love to call the already and not yet. Jesus has come. Indeed, and he has conquered death. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the kingdom of God is with us. But it is not complete. It is not yet fully consummated. We live in an age that salvation has come. Sanctification is happening. But glorification or the full glory of the new heavens and the new earth are not yet here. We are not yet in the time where there will be no pain and no tears. A time where Augustine describes as non-passe peccare," or unable to sin. A time where sin's presence will be no more. But Paul in verses 5 through 14 gives us the reasons why we need not sin. That we at times can not sin or said differently, that sin has no power over us. Because in verse 8 and 9, we know that if we have died with Christ, that we are united to Christ in his death and in his penalty, we know also that we live with Christ. Therefore, since Jesus defeated death, meaning defeated sin's penalty and now lives in us through the Holy Spirit, we are transformed and set free from the power of sin to live in this newness of life, this life that renews our minds. As he says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our minds are renewed and our heart's desires changed. We begin to no longer want to sin and we begin to understand what sinful thoughts And sinful behaviors are. Let's consider it this way for a minute. Let's assume for a moment that I have a severe intolerance for gluten. I don't, but let's just assume for a minute that's true. And let's also say that I love bread and pastries, pizza, beer. All true, by the way. And the other things that are delicious to look at and to eat. And let's also just say that while I'm eating these things, man, I love them. They are delicious. Pizza in the crust, tomato sauce, a nice muffin with icing, or maybe jelly on top of a nice English muffin. Man, that is good. But a short time later, would it not be that I would be very sick? I would probably itch and swell up. I might vomit even. I would be weak and unable to do most anything. I hope I would learn that the short-term pleasure that might come from eating those delicious and yummy things would ultimately not bring me satisfaction. And would rob me of the joy of doing other things while I lay in bed trying to recover. And it would not be, wouldn't it be true that every so often I would just think, Man, just a little piece of that muffin, it can't be so bad. And I would try it. And I would end up back in the bed for another day. I would hope that eventually it would get through my thick skull that I couldn't eat gluten. Similarly, we might want to understand the short-term pleasures of sin might be especially inviting, especially in the early relationship we might have with Jesus, or even we might have an addiction to sinful thoughts, sinful behaviors through the power of the Holy Spirit and the renewing of our minds we will little by little day by day no longer wish to sin Paul tells us how to live in this new life in verses 12 and 13 let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions Do not present yourself, your members, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That is, we may live in the truth that we have been set free of the power of sin over us that we can remember daily that we no longer need to set our minds and our hearts on the things that are wrong, but we can live in the reality that we, those who believe, are instruments of God's righteousness. This is why Scripture tells us to confess our sins, not that we may live in the guilt of them, But in fact, that we may live in the freedom from them. That we confess and repent and then live in this freedom and knowledge. That not only is God forgiving us of our sins, but he is teaching us what sin is and what sin feels like. He is giving us the power of the Holy Spirit to live as Christ. And to avoid sin. Our third and final point is what is the goal? What is the purpose and point of sanctification? The goal is twofold. As the Westminster Catechism says again, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. One very specific goal of sanctification is that we may live more and more like Jesus. And two that we may live toward the third big promise. The promise, the freedom of the presence of sin itself. As Paul puts it in verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The word dominion here is a word that means slave to, slave to sin, or that sin has its control over us. He is reminding us that we're not controlled by sin any longer, but we are free to live in the new reality of life of people who do not need to sin. But isn't it so easy to go back Isn't it so easy to fall back into the patterns and the thoughts that are so sinful? We see it so clearly, don't we? In the people of Israel, in the Exodus, here they are, 400 years in slavery, death, oppression to the Egyptians, and God hears their prayers and delivers them from this horrible, horrible place. And shortly thereafter they beg to go back they cry out to go back to slavery for it is comfortable paul reminds us here that this is new it is the newness of life and yes it might feel at times uncomfortable because it's new. But we are called to live in the newness. It is a life of joy. It is a life which is good, and it is a life which is right. The other objective of sanctification is to prepare us or give us a foretaste for the coming consummation of the redemption of all things. John in Revelation describes what is to come in this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth and the first heaven had passed. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. A new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain evermore the former things have passed the promise the very promise of not just the freedom from penalty of sin not only the promise of a freedom from the power of sin but the future promise that there will be no sin If you are new with us, if you have been questioning this gospel story, if you have been in the midst of this craziness and wonder, how do I reset? How do I make sense of all of this? I encourage you to seek and to find the gospel in Jesus Christ. When we pray, I'm going to pray a small prayer of acceptance. And if it is something that your heart desires, I seek that you would pray that prayer and that you would let us know. For it would be a great joy. For it is the joy of heaven for everyone who comes home to him. Let's pray. Gracious, and merciful, Father, you have shown us great mercy. For you have come and you have died, but you have risen and defeated death. Father, we accept the belief, the, un- the idea, the knowledge that you, Father, are the only one who can bring us back into a right relationship with you by the conquering of death, the penalty of sin. And that you, by your grace and by your goodness, that you will make us more and more and more and more each day into your image to be more like you. Father, we commit our very lives to you. For all that we have and all that we know, we give to you. For all that we are is filthy rags. But what you are, Father, is you make in us glorious. We praise you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.